Amen. Thank you, choir, orchestra, praise team. I tell you, if you can't get up and sing with the angels, something's wrong. <laughs> Glory to God in the highest. You know, uh, <laughs> I was thinking that song helped loosen me up a little bit. Uh, especially, you know, I, I, I said, Daniel, why don't I be willing to sing in the choir? I love to sing in the choir, uh, in the choir portion of the Gainesville Christmas Festival. And so I just thought he'd put me on the back row. You know, I'd kind of sneak in on the back. And I don't know if you were here, but they put me dead center. And then here's what they said. Now you need to look happy. And you need to clap your hands and sway a little bit. You need to fit in. And not only did they do that to me, they stuck me in between Dee and Kevin and some of our biggest movers and shakers up there. So that if I didn't, I'd really stick out. So anyway, so if you felt a little bit uncomfortable, I know where you're at, okay? Uh, we need to praise the Lord and just enjoy our time worshiping Him. Uh, we're going to do that all throughout eternity. So uh, you better just get used to it. Take your Bibles, if you would. Matthew chapter 2, as we continue this series called The Birth of the King. Matthew chapter 2. And uh, we're going to join the story where we left it off last week. Where did we leave the story last week? Well, we left it with this incredible picture of these magi, these wise men, the king makers of the world bowing at the feet of Jesus. A little child, a little baby boy in Nazareth, I mean in Bethlehem. What an incredible picture. And what we see in that picture is God's ultimate purpose, that the nations would worship the Son, that the nations would worship Jesus. That is the purpose of this church. We're here to connect the peoples of the world to life in Jesus, purpose in Jesus, community in Jesus. We want to see people worship Jesus. God is committed to that, and we're going to see the level of his determination and his commitment in this passage this morning. Now, I had you stand for the reading of God's word last week, and I'm not trying to begin a ritual, but here's why I want you to stand again, if you would stand again uh, as we read through this, and we're going to read the whole passage. Here's why. Because I want the world to know, and I want you to re remember that when, when we read God's word, we're reading the very authority of God. This, it carries the authority of Jesus standing here and preaching and speaking to you. It carries that level of authority, and sometimes at Christmas time in particular, we, we think of these things in terms of, uh, well, well, the world may think of these things in terms of a, of a little manger set, of, of maybe legend. And I talked last week about making sure we don't add legend to the Word of God, and so we just want God to speak to us through this, and so we stand recognizing the authority of God's word in our life. So let's read together a, a tragic moment, but a triumphant moment. It says, Now when they had departed, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. What a, what a contrast, huh? From the, from the wise men worshiping to, to total resistance, hostility, and rejection. And the angel of the Lord 
warned them. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. I want you to notice something as I read. I want you to notice every time God's mentioned. We've already heard that an angel of the Lord came and warned Joseph. We already see that's what, what is happening according to this gospel. Everything that is happening is to fulfill what who has spoken. What the Lord has spoken by his prophet. And then in verse 16 it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. Can you visualize this? It's horrific, isn't it? Yet this was part of God's plan, this destruction of these children. Now we think in terms of thousands and most likely we're only talking 20, 30, 40 children in that small town of Bethlehem in that area that would have been around two years age or younger, but just, just imagine. There was a voice heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream... He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the city of Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Father, I ask that we would see your determination, your great mission to present Jesus to this world, and I pray, God, that we would surrender and join you in that mission. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And what I wanted you to notice as I read to point out is three times we see Matthew quote Scripture. Three times we see him say, this is God's plan. And that plan included tragedy. That plan included a wicked political leader. That, That plan included excessive taxation. Say amen. That plan included immigration, fleeing, running. But I also want you to see that three times, and you may have only noticed it once, but three times just in that passage, God spoke to Joseph in a dream and moved him around. When we look at the story of Christmas, what Matthew is trying to get across is this is the king And God has an unstoppable mission. Nothing can stop the mission of God. I want us to see the big picture and not get caught up into the fine details of the frankincense, the gold, and the myrrh. We might talk about that on Christmas Eve. I'm not sure yet. But we could get into the fine details, but don't forget the big picture. 
Matthew, the tax collector, has become Matthew, the lawyer, has become Matthew, the the tour guide of history, who's coming to present to you, this is God's plan to present the king to the world. And we're going to see different people's responses to this plan. And you have an option of how you respond to this plan as well. But when you look at this mission, it is pretty, pretty powerful that the nations would rejoice and worship at the feet of Jesus. Now, one of the things that jumped off the page at me as I studied this passage, and, and, and maybe we, just, we could just end at this today, is that I am increasingly angry at our culture. I'm increasingly angry. But I really have to watch my heart and watch my mind, and you need to as well. I I walked up here with a Starbucks cup. (laughs) And we think because Starbucks doesn't recognize the Savior, God's mission is somehow going to be stopped. We think because they're taking carols out of the the school system, God's mission is going to be stopped. But all I see in this passage, and see, I get angry at this stuff. And we get angry, and one of the reasons we're angry is because uh, for the last 200 years, Christianity has been the predominant theme. It's been the predominant culture. And we've, we've we've had preeminence. And we don't like losing that control. And we have begun to think, and if we're not careful, we begin to think that Christianity is dependent upon our culture. And it is not. And Matthew makes a big point to show, listen, Herod, the political tyrant, tried to kill Jesus. He couldn't do it. (laughs) He couldn't do it. All the circumstances were against this young man becoming the Messiah. And He prevailed. God is unstoppable in his mission. And this side of the cross, we know he's already won. Now, we're going to ask the question, is he going to win the battle for your life? This little life that you and I have getting, we could choose what we want to do with this, and and we can respond to him as a Herod, or we can respond to him as one of the priestly craft, or we can respond to him as maybe one of the wise men. How are we going to respond? But listen, God's mission is not going to be stopped. And I think we ought to stand up for Christian values in our country. And I pray God for revival. And, and I, but I just don't want us to get our theology messed up and become a fearful, dreadful, uh, isolated people because our God is in control. And Matthew demonstrates that in this passage. And I want to show you how he did that. We've already seen that he miraculously provided his king. He bent the laws of nature to bring about Jesus. He he bent the laws of the universe. We don't even know all of how he did it, but he said, universe, point to Bethlehem. Guide the magi there. The universe bends at the will of the Father, and he said, I will bend the universal laws to point people to Jesus. He navigated, as we saw in the first message, the broken and twisted genealogy of Jesus. He navigated all of the insanity of the people and all of the murder and all of the adultery and all of that. He navigated to produce a sinless child named Jesus. He brought 
life into the womb of a virgin, we see that the laws of nature cannot prevail against God's mission to present Jesus to this world. Second of all, we saw him providentially protect the king. Now, if you're writing down your outline, I want you to write it down as, as I am presenting it up on this because I put it in the present tense. The same God who provided and protected and is proclaiming Jesus, that same mission that occurred 2,000 years ago is continuing today. And so he continues to provide the opportunity for people to know Jesus. He continues to protect the gospel. And if we resist it here, the gospel will move on. It will do its work. He providentially protected his king. Three, three dreams to Joseph. But notice he protected him against the political tyranny of his day. And what I see in our, in our land is political tyranny. What I see around the world is political tyranny. And sometimes we think, God, how are we going to overcome this? Well, we can't. I mean, we can be a part of it, but God ultimately is going to move through his people and he'll bend the laws of nature. We saw him guide the hearts of the prophets. He will and has overcome. He overcame the political tyranny of his day by a man by the name of King Herod. You say, get rid of taxes. I got to thinking, if, if God had gotten rid of taxes, Mary and Joseph would have never been in Bethlehem. We just have to know God's working through the taxes. He's working through the tragedies. King Herod was just a brilliant person. I've taken a few groups to Israel, and his stuff that he built is still there. That which wasn't destroyed. And even he was a master builder, he was a master politician, he was a master manipulator. And he would kill anyone to keep his position. He killed several of his wives, two of his own sons, killed his father-in-law. Don't say amen to that. But anyway, <laughs> one of the reasons that it's not in the historical records, this murder of the children there in Bethlehem, that was a blip on the screen for the murderous reign of Herod. He murdered people. In fact, he had in his will to round up all the important folks there in the area, put them in prison, and slaughter them all on the day of his death just to make sure some people were weeping when he died. So it was not, <laughs> it was not strange for him to say, go kill all those children. It was not strange. He makes ISIS look pretty good. I mean, we, we look at someone like this and we, we fear, is this going to overcome God? Herod couldn't overcome Jesus. His mission was unstoppable. He protected providentially his son Jesus. He provided miraculously his son Jesus in the face of political tyranny. He did it also in the face of religious and social corruption. Did you notice back in the, in the story of the wise men and the magi, the, uh, King Herod went to the 
priests, the scribes, the people who knew the Bible in his day, the religious elite, and said, where is the Messiah to be born? Oh, Bethlehem. That's where he'd be born. Well, the wise men have come and said that, the well, they just kind of stayed in their place. The religious elite of their day did not want that Messiah. They were comfortable in their spot. They liked the control and the power they had in their position. They did not want this, this Messiah to, uh, uh, to, ov- to rule them and to lead them. They wanted the Messiah to come along and endorse and lift them up and release them from their captivity, their Roman captivity, and let them continue to be in power. So you see Herod, Politically, and, and, and politically, we're always going to struggle this. Religiously, we're always going to struggle this because in the heart of human beings are little Herods. In the heart of, little, of, of, of all of us are little religious elites. And we get comfortable. And we want to control it. We want it to be just like we want it. And, and, and God said, I've got to present my Savior, and I will move around your elitism. I will use the political tyranny of that day. I will use the religious and social corruption, but I am going to bring my Messiah to this world. And he overcame that. He also overcame what was nothing less than terrorism and persecution. Terrorism and persecution in his day. You say, what kind of human being would kill a child in order to maintain control of his life or her life? What kind of society would allow the murder of children so that we're not inconvenienced and put out of place? Now, if y'all are not catching the innuendo... We kill thousands of babies a day as a culture. Why? We want our lives the way we want them. No different from Herod. No different. So the gospel has to overcome that, and it does. And we're facing persecution. There's no doubt about that. It's interesting how it works. In our country, it used to be that you could come to the table with different ideas and agree to disagree, right? Well, now you come to the table and a disagreement is not allowed. It's not allowed. Someone once wrote that evil preaches tolerance until it is dominant and then it seeks to silence good. Evil preaches tolerance. I want a place at the table. I want a place at the table. You need to take my ideas of what marriage is. You need to take my ideas of what sexuality is like. You need to take my ideas of what morals are. I want a place at the table. I want a place at the table. And then you get a place at the table, and then you say, I want the whole deal. No one disagrees with me. And so we're seeing this. Jeff Bromley gives a definition of persecution that I think is interesting. It says, persecution is the suffering or pressure, mental, moral, or physical, which authorities, individuals, or crowds inflict on others 
especially for opinions or beliefs, with a view to their subjection by recantation, silencing, or as a last resort, what? Execution. Now, that's a big definition. You can email me if you want it. Uh, but we see that happening in our culture. You say, I can't believe those, those activists of today are doing that to us. But be careful. Because those who are comfortable and in power sometimes will turn and want to do it to them. You say, well, I wouldn't abuse my power. I wouldn't abuse my place. If everybody just agree with me, we'd be fine. I would treat everybody equally and fair until you're challenged and your comfort is challenged, your authority is challenged. Then watch what you're sometimes willing to do. Don't deny there's a little Herod in your heart. Now watch this. Watch this. So, so God didn't avoid tragedy and trouble. He used it to fulfill his promises. And so when I look at the, the Starbucks cups and I look at the, and I get mad, everybody, every time someone says happy holidays to me, I just, ooh. I'm going to go, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and somehow I think that's not the spirit I want to get across, right? You know what I think is at the root? Now, y'all have to be with me. Some of y'all are going to go home wondering, what did he say today? Stick with me. I think sometimes at the root of my anger is not righteous indignation, but the desire to control and keep it the way I like it. And watch, how did Jesus deal with this? This is pretty, this is pretty powerful. We're going to have to jump ahead to what he did to present the king. Matthew chapter 3. Now how does this go along with the story? 30 years of silence... And then Jesus appears on the scene. And what is heard first is this John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. Crying in the wilderness. And you know the story. John the Baptist is preaching repentance. Prepare the way of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come out and be baptized and get right with God because the Messiah is coming. So he's, he's preaching this text and People are coming out and getting baptized. And, and that was going on for a while before Jesus came on the scene. And then Jesus shows up one day, and John tells us that, that Jesus, John looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He recognized Jesus for who he was. But then there's this interesting presentation of Jesus. So Jesus comes, and it says in verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now this is subtle, but just hang with me for a second. Even John the Baptist is resisting a little bit the plan of God. In a little bit. Because he's looking at Jesus and he says, no, you're the Messiah. You're the king. 
Why are you identifying with us bunch of sinners? I know you, Jesus. You have no sin to repent. You have nothing to be washed away. You need to wash me. But God knew if I'm going to save this world, Jesus can't avoid this identification with wicked humanity. So God's plan is unstoppable, even right in front of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, to his credit, (laughs) listen to Jesus. Look what Jesus said. He said, John, I know you don't quite understand this, but let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John, what? Not my will, but yours, Jesus. I will dunk you under as if you are fully sinful. And I will lift you up. And you will look like one of us. But the difference is when I'm dipping you in, it's not washing sin away, it's just putting our sin all over you. And you're coming up covered with us. And instead of looking at Jesus and saying, look everybody, he's the lion of Judah, bow. John got it. He looked at Jesus and he said what? Look at the lamb. Because he began to understand, not fully at this point, but he began to understand this mission, this unstoppable mission is different than I thought. This king has come to die. He's come to be a lamb. A lot of people struggle with that. Even even sometimes a lot of good Baptists do that. I'll come to them and I've I've sat in a lot of homes and asked people, you know, why, why should God let you into heaven? I've sat there with people who have been in church like this for years, their entire life. I said, why should God let you into heaven? And they'll say, well, I've been pretty good. I've really, I've gone to church a lot. I try to be nice to people. That, in essence, is the same resistance John the Baptist had. No, 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 no. I'm not going to let you do everything for me. I've got to do some of this for you. Jesus looked at John and said, John, no, I've got to do all of this. I will die, I will resurrect, so that anyone who has faith in me can know me as their king, can become one of my children. No man, through political, religious effort, all of these things, There'll be no kingdom. There'll be no peace. There'll be no salvation working through all of those agendas. We've tried it, but we, the problem is the best of us have Herod's in us and Pontius Pilate's in us and Judas is in us. So I'm gonna have to come. I'm gonna do for you something you can't do for yourself. I'm gonna identify with sinful humanity I'm going to give my life as a lamb. I'm going to suffer sin and death 
I'm going to suffer that for humanity so that truly people can find peace. Now, how are you going to respond to that? Well, the typical response of people we see in this passage, the typical response, there are those who are religiously comfortable or comfortable with their, I mean, I've heard that from so many people. Well, I'm good. I'm good with God. Me and the man upstairs are okay, right? That's sort of like those folks in Jerusalem, the, the, the priestly craft that said, yeah, I know he's over there. I don't really need King Jesus. Comfortable. Now, what, what, how did the people respond that had that kind of relationship? They're not overtly hostile to God. They don't go and try to silence him. They just try to sabotage the work of God in their lives. Are you sure that Jesus is who he said he was? Are you sure? They'll just keep asking questions instead of surrender. They'll just keep finding loopholes instead of bow to the king. You see the Pharisees and the Sadducees throughout the ministry of Jesus just kept going out and kept saying they were testing him. And a lot of people just continue to test Jesus until they die. They just say, prove it to me, prove it to me. And they just continually sabotage the rulership of Christ in their lives and they never bow. And, and maybe some of you are in that place and I, I can't, I don't know how to get around that for you. I can try to help answer some of the questions, but what you have to do is come to the point sometimes to realize that it is just, you want to control your life. You want it the way you want it, and King Jesus would interrupt that. And you're not going to be overtly hostile, but you will compromise with society. You'll compromise your doctrine. You'll compromise your lifestyle. You'll go along to get along. And that was the story of the scribes, the Sadducees. But what we're seeing in our culture now we're seeing a shift, aren't we, in our world. The second level is not passive-aggressive sabotage. It is aggressive hostility. It's not just trying to sabotage the king. What we're seeing in our day and time is people are literally trying to silence the king. We don't want to hear it. You have no place at the table. When I read this passage, what it's telling me is that was happening 2,000 years ago. Jesus said it would happen. I shouldn't be surprised. Doesn't mean I'm happy about it. But what should our response be? Well, I look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist was confronted with something he didn't fully understand at that time. But when he was confronted with the Lamb of God, he was confronted with God's plan I want, you to read, I want to read you something. I want to read you something. In John, the gospel of John, it tells us a little bit of, of how he reacted, and I love this. This is, this, is, this is what I want my response to be to the mission of God that's going on in this world. In John chapter 3, verse 27, listen to what Jesus said. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said. No, John's talking. You yourselves are my witnesses 
that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. I'm a messenger of the Messiah, John the Baptist says. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. He says, Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. My job is just to set the table, prepare the way. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. And here's, the, here's what he says. He must increase. I must decrease. Jesus must fill up and become the essence of my life. He can use the tragedies of my life, the triumphs of my life, the persecution in my life, the taxes in my life. He can use my disabilities, my sicknesses. He can use uh, my wealth, my prosperity. Whatever it is, he takes that. He increases, I decrease. And what John the Baptist is saying, by the way, how did Jesus treat his friend John the Baptist? I think his head ended up on a platter. What kind of friend is Jesus? He's a friend who knows that our head on a platter is not a problem. The sin in our heart is the problem. That is the problem. Would you rather have a few more years of physical life on this earth or an eternity in the presence of your heavenly Father. Which would you rather have? So we get it mixed up sometimes. Do you want a Christmas tree on your Starbucks cop? Yeah, I do. I want them to say Merry Christmas when I walk into Starbucks. How can I expect that from someone who doesn't know Jesus? It's not a Merry Christmas. It's not. So, what's going to be your response? Are you going to sabotage? I'll never outright say it, but God's not going to get control of my life. Is it going to be outright hostility? Or can you say, may I decrease and you increase? Let's pray together. What is your prayer this morning? Where do you stand? Are are you with the passive-aggressive? I'm just going to resist, but not overtly. I doubt very much that anybody in here is overtly hostile against it, but I, I don't know. Maybe right now you want to silence the voice of Christianity. Maybe someone watching or listening wants that. God overcame that with an infant, a poverty-stricken infant. He overcame the tyranny, the terrorism of his day. God's God's not bound by these things that we fear so much, but what he's looking for are is a church. And I'm praying Westside will be the church. I'm praying this pastor will be that kind of pastor. 
I pray that we would just be willing in this age of trial and tribulation, we would just be willing to say, we decrease so that you may increase. We let go so that you can reign and rule in our lives. Where, where are you this morning? Maybe some of you need to trust Christ. God is on mission. It's unstoppable. You can't beat God, so you might as well join him. Matthew said, you can't beat God. The king will rule, but are you going to join him? Father, I pray that there would be folks here that right now would trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. And like John the Baptist, surrender their hearts and say, use me. Use me to proclaim the kingdom is as at hand. To the very end of my life, use me, Lord Jesus. May we be a church as we go into 2016 that says, we decrease so that Jesus may increase. God, use our hearts, our lives, our homes, our finances, our church, our voices, our intellect, our jobs, our positions of influence, use it all. Because God's presenting his king. And we want to join him. We want to join you, Father, in your unstoppable, glorious mission. We thank you for the victory we have in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.